بسم الله الرحمن الحمد لله رب My name is Clara, and this is Sandstone. Sandstone is a storytelling podcast that seeks to understand the nuanced worlds of Arabia and Appalachia and the people that call these places home. Today we'll meet the second character in our three-part series on Islam. His name is Kip, and he's the imam at a local mosque in West Virginia. So you might be surprised that we even have a mosque in West Virginia. Actually, we have five. We also have some Jewish temples, a couple of Buddhist monasteries, and one Hare Krishna palace of gold. I highly recommend all of the above. Whenever you first enter an unfamiliar place of worship, it feels a little awkward, and you get this sneaky feeling that everyone is watching you and you're doing everything wrong. This is because everyone is watching you and you are doing everything wrong. But despite your own discomfort, more often than not, you'll be welcomed. Back in the day, my dad had this experience the first time he went to a mosque. I actually visited a mosque down in Pittsburgh by myself, went down and um, took my shoes off at the door and did the whole routine and met actually a guy named Reda. We, we wrote letters back and forth for what? a little while. Yeah. We oh did. my gosh, you had a Muslim lover? I did. I had a Muslim brother. <laughs> I said lover. We, 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 brother. We, Unlike my father, I did not meet a Muslim lover the first time I went to a mosque. I was in Bahrain on a week-long exchange program. It was me and a small herd of West Virginia girls, straight out of the mountain state. Before entering the mosque, we all put on the head coverings and floor-length robes provided to us, which we were very excited about. And you would think by wearing the right attire, we would blend in. Quite the contrary. We looked like a group of runaway Catholic nuns, prancing around the mosque, wide-eyed and very out of place. But despite our awkward cluelessness, the Muslim women doted on us and welcomed us as sisters, and I've been treated the same at every mosque I've been to since. I can imagine that Kip might have felt similarly his first time in a mosque. Apart from feeling like a nun, I doubt he looked like a nun, but he was a white kid from Alabama, and he didn't grow up Muslim. He didn't grow up religious at all. It was a childhood friend that first introduced him to Islam. My best friend was from Afghanistan. They were an immigrant family, and I used to spend a lot of time with them. They were the first people that really exposed me to kind of like an organized religion, right? But growing up, Kip wasn't concerned with religion or spirituality until one day in his early 20s. I was watching TV, and there was a documentary about the war in Afghanistan. And when I saw that, it reminded me of my friend, and I was kind of wondering, I wonder what he's up to now. And then I was, you know, thinking about the conversations I had had with his family. He was curious, so he started reading. First, about Afghanistan, then the Middle East, and finally, about Islam. 
And then after that, it was just kind of like snowball effect. I just kept like reading more and more and then looking up lectures and videos until I got to a point where I was like, you know what, I really think this is true. I think this is true, but then at the same time, I don't really want to be a Muslim. Like, I don't want to pray five times a day. I don't want to fast. I don't want to not drink, not date, all these things. And then I just kind of had a, a light bulb moment where I thought, that's the worst possible situation you could be in in terms of religion. It's like, I believe this, I know it's true, but I'm just not going to do it because I don't want to have to change, right? Maybe if I said, I don't understand, I'm not convinced, I could have some kind of excuse with God. But if I just say, no, I believe it, I know it's the truth, I just don't want to do it. That's not the, the excuse you want to bring, right? When you, when you go to face to face with God at the end of your life. So then I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go do it. And I went to uh, visit the local mosque and accepted Islam that day. How did your community and family react when you converted? My family, they're very open-minded, so they didn't give me any problems. I mean, me, I was pretty like wild. Kid. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not gonna go into details, but I gave my family a whole lot of problems to the point that when I like converted to Islam, they were just kind of like, uh, okay, like they're like, that's kind of weird. We didn't expect that, but whatever. But then after they saw that it made like a huge change in my life, then they came to really respect it a lot, right? So even my mom has like said to me before, you know, I'm the oldest of five siblings. My two youngest brothers, one's in middle school and one's in high school. And so my mom, you know, has said before, like, I wish the two of them would convert to Islam so they'll, like, respect their parents and like, listen to us and, and, you know, not act so crazy. So, like, you know, they have a lot of respect for it now. Shortly after converting, Kip moved to Morgantown, where his mom was living and became involved with the local Islamic center. But how does a 20-something convert from Alabama become an imam? So it was literally not something that I had planned for, but for whatever reason, our previous imam may, like, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself at the time even. So even when I started being an imam, in the community understood it was like kind of on the job training. They were kind of like, this person's not really technically qualified to be an imam, but let's let him learn, uh, you know, as he goes. For one thing, it's really nice for me because, because I have that history with the people and they watched me grow, that I never feel that people take me too seriously, which is like the best thing. I present my understanding, right? And if it makes sense to you guys, then good. Then if not, you know, you're all human beings with your own brains <laughs> to use and are free to disagree with me. Kip now leads a diverse international community in Morgantown. The Islamic Center holds community events, religious services, prayers, and the weekly equivalent of Sunday church service, the Friday prayer. Friday is our, we have our big worship service, but it's very simple, right? The whole thing lasts no more than about 30 minutes. So the people come, they sit down, they gather. We don't have any chairs, everybody just comes, we sit on the floor. At 1.30, I get up on the mimbar, which is the, the pulpit, right, where I speak from. And I give a real quick, I don't like the word sermon, but a reminder, right? And I talk just for about 15, 20 minutes. 
And then we pray together, and then everybody goes their separate ways, goes back to work, goes to class. So the Friday prayer is required for men. When people ask me about the challenges of being a Muslim in America, that's probably the, the main challenges we face revolve around this idea that we have a certain program, a way of life, a certain set of rules that we live our life by that aren't the same as everybody else around us. Right? I remember mm-hmm. having a, uh, one of those nighttime classes in the middle of the class. I used to have to get up to go take a bathroom break and literally just pray in the corner of the hallway right there outside of the classroom because, you know, it's time to pray. You got to do what you got to do. On the surface, this sort of religious mandate might seem intense. But to Kip, this is what spirituality is all about. Being spiritual is about discipline. The belief of Muslims is there's a verse in Quran that says uh, that human beings were created to worship, right? That is the purpose of your existence is to have a relationship with God, right? And, and you know, the Islamic theology is like, has a very strong sense of who God is, right? Just completely all-powerful, that everything at all times is in his hands and that, you know, nothing happens without his permission. So the life of a Muslim is this constant being aware of that relationship with God. And that's why when you have five daily prayers, you know, you, you're constantly having to come back and take a break from whatever is going on in your day to remember God. There's one thing that, like, always really struck me, that when we pray, the, you're supposed to pray with your eyes open. Which is like, for me, was contrary to what would first come to my mind. You think, okay, I want to focus on God or whatever. I want to close my eyes and completely forget the world around me, right? And I always kind of understood from that that Islam is about being with God while being in this world at the same time, right? So Islam, it has a project for this world, right? There is a political side to Islam. Like, we have rules about governance, all those things. But that all has to go equally hand in hand with the spiritual side as well. Every single thing in your life is religion, and every single thing in your life is spirituality. Islam is the youngest of the major world religions and shares much in common with its cousins, Christianity and Judaism. We believe that the all the prophets that Jesus taught the exact same thing that Muhammad taught, that Moses taught, that Abraham taught, that all of them taught the exact same thing. But we believe that in the details over time, things got changed in Christianity and in Judaism. And that's why we believe the the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that he actually came to correct those kind of man-made things that had been put into the previous religions, right? So that's why the Quran is constantly talking about coming back to the religion of Abraham. Let's all go back to what he was doing and get rid of all the stuff that was added later. The the Muslims have an amazing system of preserving their religion. When I learn Quran, I don't just pick up a copy of the Quran off the shelf and read it. I have a teacher who I recite it in front of, and he corrects my mistakes. Right, to the point that even if I said something like min qabalu instead of min qabalu, that's a mistake that he'll point out. It's exactly how long you hold out each vowel. Right? So it's not just about is the the meaning of the word preserved, are you even reading it exactly the right way? 
right? So I have to read it aloud in front of him for him to correct my state mistakes. He did that from a teacher as well, who did it from a teacher as well. And he can give you the list of all these names all the way back to the Prophet Muhammad himself. Peace be upon him. So I think that's pretty impressive, but regardless of its claimed historical integrity, what about the content itself? And where do these extremist interpretations come from? So if you look at people like bin Laden, they gave fatwa, right, which means a religious ruling. Bin Laden made this big press conference and gave this big fatwa about everybody has to kill Americans or whatever. That would be like me going up and standing on the steps of the Supreme Court and saying, the ruling in this case is this. Like, who am I? Like, who am I to say what's correct in, in this ruling, right? Bin Laden was an engineer. I mean, basically what a lot of them do is they cut off that relationship to the tradition, right? And that's why a lot of people don't realize, right? I mean, it's very dangerous um, that when people are calling for a more liberal interpretation of Islam, once you open that door to say, you know, we don't care how people have understood the religion for the past 1400 years. We are modern people. We have the best understanding. We have the most right to interpret the religion. Once you open that door, you can't choose who's going to do the reinterpreting, right? So if you're going to open it up to the you know extra liberal person, you're also opening that door to the guy that's going to come and say, oh, well, when the scholar said it's not allowed to kill innocent people, I'm saying that's allowed. The right way, you know, in my mind is to be, you know, to stick to the, to the tradition, not going to go too far in this direction and not too far in that direction. So in re response to the comment about the more liberal but progressive Islam, how do you respond to the perceptions of inequality in Islam? No, I think this is a big misunderstanding, right? I mean, um, so if you're talking about like between genders, for example, there is a certain idea of there's different roles in the family, you know, for the man and the woman, right? And we believe there was a wisdom that God created men and women with different strengths and weaknesses. It's not that one is better than the other, right? But it's just that, you know, one person is really good at athletics and they win an Olympic medal. Another person is really is really smart and wins a Nobel Prize. Both are amazing people, right? God gives different talents to different people. And biologically, you have to admit that men and women have differences, right? So they have different strengths and weaknesses. And, weaknesses, and you know, we believe that God made them for specific roles to play in their family and their societies. Now, that being said, there's definitely, if you want to talk about what's actually going on on the ground in a lot of Muslim societies, there are problems, right? There is a lot of, you know, mistreatment of, of women and things that's not a part of the religion, right? Islam is a complete system. But if you take just one piece here and there, it doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. So some people say Islam is so unfair, the woman gets half of what the man gets in inheritance. First off, that's only in some cases. It depends on exactly the situation. But also, too, you can't understand that without understanding that the woman has no, no financial responsibilities at all in her family. So the man gets twice as much, but then he has to spend out of that on the woman. Whereas the share that the woman gets, that's just her money to do whatever she wants with, and she's not responsible to pitch into the needs of the family at all. It's just, you know, whatever she wants to do with her own money, that's her business. Of course, if we took that law 
and went and applied it in American society the way it is right now, it's not going to be just, right? But that's not the point. You're not supposed to take these laws and apply them selectively in a different society as part of a whole complete system. Although Islam is a complete system, it's possible to support this system while still participating in a democratic society. The Muslim American community is an example of this. Yet recent policies discourage this marriage of identities and even prevent it. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. No, I mean, of course, every country has the right to, or the responsibility, right? not just the right, the responsibility to ensure the safety of the people. But, I mean, let's be real. Anybody who's an actual expert in the field says that this is not actually a helpful policy in any way. It doesn't actually prevent the real threats and it gives ammo to people that want to push people towards doing violence, right? So one thing, first thing is that it just doesn't, it's not actually working. And I don't think the people who propose these policies think that they're actually the best thing for national security. They just know that this is something that plays to the base, that riles people up. Because I think a lot of people that are for these policies, they're not bad people, not racist people, they don't hate Muslims, but they've just kind of been sold a bill of goods and they bought it and they're confused about the reality. I definitely don't like the idea of playing the victim. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I don't like, oh, poor us, we're discriminated against, everybody hates us. Like, no, we have to stand up for our rights, but too, at the same time, I, I don't like this idea of just wanting everybody's sympathy that, oh, it's so hard to be a Muslim because people give us such a hard time. Because definitely, like, when you talk about right after 9-11, there was definitely this fear of Muslims as violent people. And the Muslims in America have done a lot to show that that's not the case. But what worries me is that that hasn't made people like Muslims anymore. You know, when they said, we don't like you because you're violent and you want to kill us, it was very easy to say, no, that's not the case. But now a lot of it is things that really are a part of Islam, right? Like we, uh, you know, don't like that you guys want to have public displays of religion, you know, that women wear their hair headscarf in public or even the face veil right they say this is not american you know we don't like the idea that you don't uh let people marry outside of the religion right that a muslim woman is not allowed to marry a christian man or something like that you know there's a lot of things that are really are a part of islam that people say this is not something acceptable in the american society so that's what worries me and then i think i think you're right at some point that if we just say like all oh, these people are just racist and they just hate us then we can't have that discussion about, well, look, maybe you disagree with, you know, maybe you think the Amish people are weird, maybe, but you let them do their thing. You don't tell them they have to drive cars or whatever, right? You give, you let them stick to themselves and live their way of life the way they want to, as long as they don't, you know, bother anybody else, then it doesn't matter to you that if somebody breaks the rules of the religion, they banish them from the community or whatever, maybe because you say that's their business. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> parallel. I'm sure good people. I love that. They Irish. are. The Muslim American community in Appalachia is relatively small, but it's there nonetheless. They're doctors and business owners and community members. And before we support policies that affect our Muslim neighbors, it might be good to get to know them first. 
Kip has found beauty and belonging in his Muslim faith, and he centered his life around it. But not everyone has the same experience. And in the following episode, we'll talk to someone who didn't find beauty and didn't belong, a devout Muslim who ultimately left his faith. Next time on Sandstone. This project is supported in part by the Honors College at West Virginia University and the Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Fund. The Critical Language Scholarship is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with funding provided by the U.S. government. Thank you for listening.